The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The Everyday Wealth Radio Show and Podcast are produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Ms. Chatsky and Ms. O'Brien are not employees or clients of the firm. They receive fixed cash compensation for acting as hosts and related activities and therefore have an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everyday-wealth. The 20 2021 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm Ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory records, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2021 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money. This is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Presented by Edelman Financial Engines. Ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. And I'm Soledad O'Brien, and you are listening to Everyday Wealth. I hope you had a great and safe and fun 4th of July holiday uh, that whole week, of course, screams summer, which is kind of what I like. Well, we don't wish the summer away ever. Uh, I've been reading about potential sales that could be coming into play, given that all these stores seem to have a ton of inventory and consumer spending seems to be slowing down. And of course, stores consistently have to make room on their shelves for the next wave of what's ever coming, which of course, in this case, is school supplies and, and everything for school. So I guess theoretically, there are deals to be had. I think there are a lot of deals to be had. The question is whether you actually want the stuff that's on sale. Stores really laid in their supplies of things that we were wearing and using during the pandemic. And I don't know, I've had enough leggings for a little while. I, maybe that's just me. One thing we really do need a sale on these days, though, is gas. Although so many families traveled over the 4th this year, Everyone had to factor the high cost of gas into their celebrations, whether you were flying or, or driving. Energy prices are putting big dents in people's wallets. Uh, a few weeks ago, Soledad, we were talking about gas prices specifically, but you had some questions about state gas prices well, and, and why they're so different yeah, from I state mean, to state. Exactly. They they differ. Um, you know, if you even just drive New York to New Jersey into Connecticut, I've been doing this lacrosse trips with my kids. So we're in Delaware, you know, and we're in Maryland and we're in uh, Massachusetts. Like there's no consistency in gas prices at all. And I don't exactly understand why. Part of it has to do with state gas taxes. We've been talking an awful lot about a federal gas holiday. It's been in the news and the fact that the federal gas tax is about 18 cents a gallon. Well, there are also state gas taxes, and, and they vary pretty significantly from state to state, and they help explain one reason, at least, why, why gas prices are cheaper. So you've heard me say, for example, I like buying gas in New Jersey rather than in my home state of Pennsylvania. We go back and forth on on weekends. Gas taxes in New Jersey, although they've gone up recently, 
have historically been a little bit less expensive. Proximity to pipelines and to refineries can make a pretty significant difference in the price at the pump. So we know that prices are very high in California and Oregon and Washington. They have a natural barrier to actually get gas by pipeline, the Rocky Mountains. And so they have to pay higher prices to ship in oil, mainly from abroad. This is also true of Las Vegas, which depends on the California market. And and finally, we've got the states along the Gulf Coast, which have the cheapest gas prices because that's where the refineries and the pipelines and the domestic sources of oil actually are. So it's a little bit of taxes, it's a little bit of pipeline, but there's a a lot that actually goes into that mix. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. So this is the time of year when all the good shows are on hiatus. And so we're looking for things to to pick up. Uh, and you kind of, you know, you see on Twitter all the time, right? Like, so what's everybody watching? I I tend to watch things that have been out for a while. I like crime light, yeah. right? I watch a lot of Castle repeats. Yeah. Love yeah. Castle. Yeah. I can do SVU over and over and over again. But the too dark, I'm not ever going to be the Wire or Breaking Bad. So Succession, yes or no? Uh, I've watched a little bit of Succession, which is on HBO. They're the worst people ever. And I guess if you're interested in how very, very wealthy people who are trying to figure out what kid gets what, it's kind of an interesting study on that world. Mm -hmm. But boy, each one is worse than the next. So it's kind of, it's a lot. It's a lot. I watched for a little while and I gave up. My husband went through the entire series. He does Breaking Bad and The Wire and all of those things. And fortunately or unfortunately, you know, most of us are not in a position to pass along or to receive an inheritance worth billions and billions of dollars. You know, when you and I talk about inheritances and our estates and passing things along, I think we're trying to do good things for our families, for the world. I mean, that is that is not happening in this show. No, this, this, I was going to say, that's so not what's that is, happening. That is not happening in this show. But we're, we're going to talk about the good part. We're going to talk about inheritance from sort of a, a high level today because we are in the midst of one of the greatest wealth transfers in history. So just a, just a couple of statistics for you. Over the next 30 to 40 years, baby boomers are estimated to transfer more than $30 trillion to younger generations. Some folks put that wealth transfer as high as $70 trillion. But 76% of high net worth individuals plan to leave an inheritance of some kind. So we're going to dig in to talk about some new and different ways to think about that. So joining our conversation to help us sort all of this out is David York. David is an estate planning attorney, a CPA, and the author of The Gift of Lift, Harnessing the Power of Stewardship to Elevate the World, which is a big promise. We'll ask him about that. David has worked with thousands of clients, billionaires, business owners, celebrities, sports figures, entrepreneurs of all shapes and sizes and has represented first-generation wealth creators, fifth-generation wealth maintainers, and 
pretty much everything in between. Welcome to the show, David. We're so excited to have you. Hi, David. Yeah, nice to be on the show. Really appreciate the chance to talk with you guys. We appreciate having you. Listen, I know you've worked with billionaires and business owners and celebrities and like sports stars and entrepreneurs, first generation wealth creators, fifth generation wealth maintainers and everybody in between. So I'm curious if the people who've had the money the longest and maybe the people who had the most money, the billionaires and the fifth generation wealthy people, do they do it the best? Have they figured it out? Well, to a certain extent, they have because they're part of an incredible minority. Reality is, you know, we've, you may have heard the old proverb of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. You know, mm -hmm. the first generation creates the wealth, the second maintains it, the third spends it. And you see that a lot in society and, and you see that a lot in family businesses. You know, 70% of family businesses want to transition to the next generation, 30% do. By the time you get to the third generation, it's down to under 10%. So to a certain extent, yes, they did figure at least something out with respect to the wealth. Now, whether they understood anything more broadly than the finances is a different question, but uh, they certainly are the exception. Interesting. Your new book, David, has this bold subtitle. It's The Gift of Lift, and the subtitle is Harnessing the Power of Stewardship to elevate the world. That's a lot. That is a big goal. What happened in your life? You went from, hey, you need a will to let's change the world. You know, it started with an experience I had uh, six years ago with Gail Miller. I think she's number seven wealthiest self-made women in the world, owner of the Utah Jazz, among other things. And we were working on a plan to make sure that the Utah Jazz stayed in the state of Utah indefinitely. And for those of you who've not been to Utah, we're a small market, we're a one-team state, so it's a big deal here. And so we were working on this trust to do that, and just out of conversation, I asked her, I said, so how will it feel to no longer own the Jazz? And she looked up at me from the docs we were reviewing, and she said, well, I don't own the Jazz. And I thought for a second, hmm. Well, that, you know, here I am. I'm her estate planner. And <laughs> she is one of the smartest, wisest people I've ever met. Incredibly smart. And so I was a little taken aback and I said, well, no, actually, you do own the jazz. And I'll never forget. She stopped and she looked at me and she said, no, I'm a steward of the jazz. Oh. And it was really one of the most powerful experiences of my life because to that point, I've always seen ownership is the top of the pyramid. And that's what we look at. Who's the owner? Who's the creator? Who has the wealth? And here is someone who has transcended that. And she found something that was higher than ownership. So it really sent me on this six-year journey of trying to figure out, okay, what is stewardship? Why is it so different? And how was she able to get to that point of not just intentionality, but freedom? I love this idea because I like the concept of a mind shift around how you think about something. The minute you start thinking about stewardship, it's not just all that I can get out of it. It becomes generations long past when you're dead, you're handing something forward. How do you get from thinking about something as just inheritance? I have a thing. I took care of it as eked what I could out of it and then handed it off or sold it or whatever. How do you get from inheritance to stewardship outside of just the... Oh, I'm framing it differently in my head now. 
The reality is so much of estate planning is about how and what. How do we do estate planning? What do we need to do? But rarely do we ever ask the why and the who. What is the why of my wealth and who do I want to impact? And when we're about possessions and property, it becomes very easy to get granular and strategic. But really, we need to be more about purpose and people and then let that drive the planning that we do. And so sometimes I think we shortchange the why when we focus on the how. We also shortchange the why when we focus on what things cost, when we focus on value being equivalent to cost. How should we be thinking about the value of things? One of the things I call it the paradox of wealth. Most, especially wealth creators who create wealth, they do it through what? Hard work, risk, stress, sleepless nights, worry, right? As a result, they highly value the wealth that they have. What does wealth help us to avoid? Hard work, risk, stress, <laughs> sleepless nights, right? And so unfortunately, while we sometimes see the pain of cost, we don't realize the value that it brings. And so that's why I think the average American inheritance is spent in 18 months. You know, if you look at it, what people build and grow over their lifetime is in America on average consumed within 18 months. And it's because the wealth that we create over our lifetime, we so value it because it costs us so much. I can transfer the financial resources as an estate planner. I can't transfer the cost. And so sometimes what we end up doing is undermining the very value that we transfer. Part of what we need to all recognize is that cost and that pain and that work that we put in actually creates the value that we see in what we have today. And so how do we actually harness that while effectively transferring wealth? I think that's ultimately the secret of those fifth generations. Are you seeing a shift in how people think about that why when they start thinking about purpose? I don't know that years ago people were having this conversation that it was always about just you know, wealth, 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 grow your wealth versus, well, what is the reason behind it? What's the purpose? And harnessing that purpose can help future generations actually begin to understand why you did all that you did and maybe value it differently. It's not just dollars and cents and, hey, now you have money, you can spend it down, but it, it represents something that could be good in the world. Are, are you seeing a big shift? Yeah, I think you're exactly spot on. I mean, the reality is, when I started practicing, I worked primarily with that greatest silent generation. They saw wealth and inheritance as an obligation. You know, they tried to live below their means. They tried to maximize how much they had so that they could transfer that to the next generation. And inheritance was seen as an obligation. Beginning with the baby boomers, though, they started to look at wealth transfer differently. One, they saw their obligation more in terms of raising and deploying children, providing them with opportunities for education or a start in life. But they, one, didn't see an obligation to minimize their lifestyle to try to transfer more. But two, they also started to see the negative effects of that inherited wealth, that unearned wealth. And they started to have concerns that with a little bit, my kids can do anything. With a lot, they can do nothing. And I'm not sure that I want my kids to do nothing. And so for a lot of my clients, it's not that they're uninformed about the need to do estate planning. They're uninspired and they're actually concerned about those negative effects. 
So you're quoting Warren Buffett in a roundabout way, mm-hmm. right? I want yes. my kids to have enough money so that they can do anything, but not so much that they can do nothing. He was in the news recently because his estate plan is kind of up in the air a little bit. He has pledged to give away 99% of his wealth. At least that's what he said. Most of it was, I guess, intended to go to the Gates Foundation. And now that that organization is in a little bit of disarray because of the divorce of Bill and Melinda Gates, it's interesting. He's saying, I'm going to give away 99% of my wealth. And yet, statistically, we know 75% of high net worth folks say, I want to leave an inheritance. I just know my kids are not ready for it. So where's the in-between? And if we want our children, should they get this money, to be good stewards of it, what do we have to do to prep them? Two good points. You know, on the Buffett, it's interesting because I think that was the kind of easy out, I'll be honest with you, it was in the past is, well, I'll avoid destroying my kids or ruining them and I'll just give those funds to charity. I think what people are realizing is it's actually easy to give your money away. It's not easy to give it away well. And I think we've all seen charities, other organizations that may be good intention, but sometimes the impact that they make is not always great. And I think sometimes we're concerned about outsourcing that on the charitable side. And I'm all for philanthropy. I'm all for giving. But I think we always have to make sure that we're doing more good than harm on that side. So I think there's some reluctance on that. On the other side, I tell clients, we tend to think of the amount of wealth that's transferred and the benefit as a direct correlation, right? So if if transferring some wealth is good, more is better. My clients invariably feel like it's more of an inverted U-curve, right? You get to a point of diminishing and even negative return on wealth transfer, Again, you leave a child 500,000 or a million, they can do anything in life. At 5 million or 10 million, they can be sidelined. And often, you know, it facilitates more destructive behavior. So for a lot of our clients, what we focus on, instead of just wealth transfer, is opportunity transfer. What's that mean? So it's focusing on things like education, entrepreneurism, home ownership, charitable engagement, Things that actually require a cost on the part of the child so that they can bring value. So instead of buying a child a house, helping match a down payment for a house, uh, Mm -hmm. instead of buying a kid a business, having them work in that industry for two years, having them save up money, maybe helping to assist with that. But when we can focus on opportunity transfer We let the kids go through their own cost analysis, not only to bring value, but to bring perspective to it. Rethinking that is such a good idea because when I look back and think, you know, what made me successful, a lot of it was I was mucking stalls at 13 because my parents would not pay for riding lessons. If I wanted any clothes, I would have to pay for them myself. We weren't poor. We were pretty solidly middle class. But there were things that I wanted that my parents were like, that is beyond the scope of what we owe you. We owe you uh, public education. We owe you food and basic clothing, not Jordache jeans. I grew up in the uh, 80s. And so I do think there is this part of being a striver is when there are things that you want and there's no way to get them. And I don't think that's an unusual story. I think people look around and say, well, I don't want to live in this town. I want that kind of car. I want that kind of opportunity. And that pushes them. And I do worry 
kids who are very comfortable mm -hmm. don't have, you know, they're kind of like my parents have an awesome house and I can drive their car whenever I want. And I think it kills a lot of ambition. And I think it's the same problem we were talking about family business and how they fail after subsequent generations. I've seen, and this is just anecdotal evidence, but I've seen situations where parents said, you want to come into our business, go work in this industry for a couple of years, go get some experience, not with us first, learn it on somebody else's dime, figure out what your meager skills at this point are actually worth and learn something before we'll take you on. And those businesses, again, my, you know, random sample of half a dozen have done pretty well. So years ago, we had a situation where we had a client that had a family business and an heir apparent in the family. And the father sold the business to the child at full fair market value. And his concept was, I want you to want this because you want it, not because you're buying it at a discount. I mean, how many of us have shirts that we bought on sale that sit in our closet? We bought it because it's cheap, not because we like it. And so he made payments for several years. Dad moved away. And then uh, one day he called the dad up and he said, hey, hey, I want you to come back and take you to dinner. And so he took dad to dinner and they were catching up. And then the son, with tears in his eyes, presented him a check for the remaining amount that was owed. And he said, thank you. He said, thank you, not just for the opportunity, but for believing in me. And so because he paid full value, he had full uh, appreciation of what it cost. And so it was a neat, powerful story of belief as opposed to what we want to do, which is save our kids the pain. Jean had a statistic a minute ago, and I wanted to give the but half of that statistic, right? She said 75% of high net worth individuals think it's important to leave their kids an inheritance, but actually only 20% think their kids are prepared to handle that wealth. Why are they not ready? Is it lack of education? Are they just not strivers? Is it that the parents have protected them? I've tried to figure out when to have conversations about finance with my kids. And sometimes, like in the doing of life and you're busy, you know, they're not these like giant swaths of time where you can say, come on, son, let's sit down and walk through our financial plan. It, you know, there's a million other things to do, especially when they're relatively young. What is the issue there in that statistic? I think it's a couple of things. One is, we focus so much on preparing the wealth for the kids and so little time preparing the kids for the wealth. Uh -huh. um, and I think part of that is the tyranny of the urgent, right? You know, at work, we try to be so intentional and we've got our 60 second elevator speech on who we are and what we do. And then it's home and it's soccer practice and homework and dinner and all of those things. But, you know, it, to me, it's like teaching kids to drive. How did we start? You start in the school parking lot at five miles an hour in the <laughs> SUV, right? And then you... We started in the cemetery, by the <laughs> okay. way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually did too. Uh, that's where my mom okay. took me. Creepy. And then you, okay. you, know, you okay. slowly work out to the streets and uh, you warn the neighbors and all mm -hmm. of that. With wealth transfer in America, mostly it's about putting kids in a Ferrari at 105 on the freeway and then we're shocked when they crash. And so... I think, Soledad, you gave a great example of starting with that learning the value of work and learning the value of cost. The only reason you did that and did that work is because you wanted writing lessons. You had something that you wanted more than the cost. And so you did it. Reminds me, I was walking through the mall once with my daughter. She was like 18 and she saw this shirt in the, in the window 
She goes, oh, I like that shirt. And I said, well, you have money. You can buy it. And she said, mm, I don't like it my money that much. She goes, I just like it your money that much. You know, and so and there's a lot of truth to that. Right. And so that that you started to learn from an early age, that whole cost benefit analysis. Um, and so I think a large part of it is it actually is about helping your kids understand at little bits Um the, the value of money, the value of making those decisions. And I think some of my clients, they work so hard for their wealth and it came with pain. They're like, well, isn't part of the value of what I earned to make it easier on my kids? And in the process, they undercut that. So, David, can you pull this together for us? I mean, we're talking about really a transfer of values much more than we're talking about a transfer of stuff or of wealth of cash and investments. But really, we have to do both. So Soledad and I have both just been going through this estate planning exercise and... Circle of hell. <laughs> Sorry, okay. but that's a, that's a fair description. It takes a while. It can be a little tedious. The back and forth with the attorney can get to be a lot. What has to happen? What tactical steps should... The people who are listening to this who say, yeah, I got to do something. I haven't looked at my estate plan for a couple of years or I don't even have one. Where do they start? Yeah, good question. Well, first, Soledad, I can't believe you don't like dealing with death and taxes. I mean, that's... Uh... You know what? I, I, if it were only death and taxes, I'd be totally fine with that. I can't yeah. manage death and taxes. It's all yeah. the other stuff piled on. I'm yeah. cool with dying. I actually, yeah. like, I think that comes at the end of a good life. I do not mind. It's negotiating all the details around your estate planning. That's the torture of the process. You are so right. It's the... Because I, I just went through this. It's if you should predecease <laughs> your spouse and your kids and his kids are both still around, how are we going to divide up these two pieces of property that nobody wants to go to anymore anyway, right? Like it's it's these tiny little who's the executor after the executor after the executor. Th that's the stuff that makes me nuts. Torture. Yeah, and, and, and obviously you do have to deal with those details. But I would say two things. One, be able to understand the why of your wealth. You know, the families that most successfully transfer wealth, the number one characteristic among those that I've seen is that they know who they are, what they value, and what they believe. They have clarity of their why, and it drives everything else. I call it a because, therefore. So many of us live in an if-then world. If I do this, then I'll get this. If I spend this time at work, then I'll get a promotion. And it's all expectation-based. What Gail showed me and examples of other stewards is they live because, therefore, model. Because I value this, therefore, this is what I'll do. And that when your driver is your why, it actually makes everything much simpler. You know, Roy Disney said, decisions are a lot easier in life when you know what you value. So I, I would say that. And then when it comes to the kids, I think every child, especially in, in high net worth families, should know the answer to three questions. What can I expect because I'm a member of this family? What can I expect in terms of relationships, support, money, all of those things? Number two, what should I not expect simply because I'm a member of this family? And then number three is what's expected of me? I will tell you this, by and large, in the families that I work with, 
Kids don't know the answers to those three questions. I think that's um, really true. That's really good. I think that's really true. I would add one more to that list. When can I expect it? I think timing is particularly important. You say teach kids in little bits, and you're giving us sort of the framework for how to think about our estate planning. But what's the first step? Starting your estate planning if you're feeling overwhelmed or you really don't even know what to do. Start with what? It kind of depends on on the age of the child, but I, you know, I had a client who, uh, over the years, developed a very large real estate portfolio, owned a lot of different apartment buildings, uh, multifamily, other things like that. And he's trying to figure out. He had teenage children, and he's trying to figure out how do I teach him how to run seventy properties. And what I said is, you didn't start with seventy properties. You, you started with mm-hmm. one. So what he actually did is, we spun off one rental property into an LLC. And we put he and the kids in charge of that. And they sat down and went through what's an income statement? What does it look like to have income and expenses? What are utilities and taxes? How do you decide how much you charge in rent and those kind of things? It's that that mentoring and apprenticeship that we've kind of lost. You know, we used to grow up more communally where you would learn and watch your mom. You'd learn and watch your dad. Uh, now everybody goes off to the office and you know, people, kids don't see those things. And so I think it's about age appropriate ways. And I think kids can actually know and understand more than we sometimes give them credit for. But sometimes life is too big. We've got to shrink it down to something that they can understand. And so those kids have done a great job. They go over they uh, sweep the lot. They uh, they check and see that their renters are paying. I mean, it's amazing the level of engagement because we've got it down to something that they could understand and then they can build from that. And how about for people who are trying to figure out where to dip their toe into estate planning? I, I'm in the middle of mine. My daughter's been kind of listening in on all of this. She actually asked me, like, so what does this mean that we get? Like, can you just explain? Is it everybody in your life who you love gets 10%? We just divide it all up. And and I was actually like, that's a great question. And as soon as I get through this estate planning, which is complicated and, and a lot, I don't know how anybody could do it by themselves. I was like, we're going to actually sit down and have a family meeting and discuss those three questions that you talked about, right? Like, here's what we expect from you here's what you could expect from us, and here's what we don't expect or you should not expect, and then the timing, of course. Here's when these things kick in. Like, I don't know why it's a big secret. In my family, my parents were not wealthy, but it was always a big secret, right? Like, it, the unveiling of the will, you know, where everybody <laughs> sits in a room and, and waits to hear, like, did they love me or did they not love me? And it's so ridiculous. I think it should just be open. So if you're trying to start estate planning, how do you begin? You know, it's funny because I mentioned that greatest generation. They're also known as the silent generation. They were a generation that did not talk about money. And it was a taboo subject in families. So part of it is breaking down those taboos. Now, that doesn't mean you get out your balance sheet and your your financial statement and go over it with your kids. But again, your daughter there, she was asking about those expectations. I think it can be as simple as as you head into adulthood, here's what you can expect. If you're working in school, we're going to help you with that. If you have a great idea for a business and you're really engaged, we want to help with that. If you want to save some money for a house, we'll help with that. But we're not sending you pizza and soda pop money. Uh, we're not bailing you out if you have financial issues. And it actually comes with a statement of belief that you believe they can do those things themselves. I've seen 
the here's what you can expect conversation, particularly when it happens a little bit further down the line, cause some issues. That all of a sudden, the older generation lives a lot longer than they expected to live. All of a sudden, they need care that they didn't expect to need. And maybe the 2008 market crash hit along the way. There's less money than there was. How do you make sure that this generation of future inheritors isn't banking on your wealth? You know, it's funny. Even kids who say they're bad at math are good at division. Uh, (laughs) You know, they they get mom and dad's net worth. They divide it by the number of kids. It's amazing. how, And you actually see it in their eyes as they're like calculating. But that's why I say it's not necessarily important to get out the financial statement because it's going to change. It's going to change based on how long people live, the health needs they have, the market's ups and downs and things like that. So to me, we should not focus on the assets. Uh, We should focus on the principles. But I'm also a fan of age-appropriate, otherwise also involving kids in, in some wealth transfer earlier on. How many inheritors inherit it in the 50s, 60s, 70s? You know, providing even modest amounts of assistance to kids in their 20s and 30s, one, helps them learn life's lessons. They can be smart or foolish with some as opposed to all. It also targets it when they probably need it more. So uh, to the extent that they can, even in modest ways, I like to see clients engage more in that intentional, thoughtful wealth transfer during life than just, hey, we'll see how much we have, divide it up and dump it down on you unprepared after we're gone. In all fairness, I was a little taken aback when my daughter, I mean, right, we were basically having a conversation of, so when you drop dead, exactly. what am I getting? How, How much? I'm, just be <laughs> precise right, to just, the penny, exactly. if, if possible, but, mom. But you know what? I, I really like, so once I got over that bit of shock, I really thought it was a good conversation. I really thought it was a good opening to exactly what you're talking about. I had in my old estate plan that my kids would get some money or something at age 50, partly because they were newborns back then. And we're like, what if they're not responsible? <laughs> what if they end up being a hot mess? I mean, so, you know, now that we've sort of seen the path, I think we're we're starting to rethink a lot of kind of the strategy and the, the values behind it. But I, I think you're right. I think you think about little bits every step of the way so that people can have a strategy themselves and they're not pining all their hopes on you dropping dead so they can get some cash. Everybody understands the plan. I just don't think it should be a secret. Completely agree. And David, I would love to revisit this at some other time. You're fascinating and clearly so full of great information. We need to take a break, though. Um, So thank you so much for being here. Anytime. David's book is called The Gift of Lift, Harnessing the Power of Stewardship to Elevate the World. A little tiny goal right there. David York, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Rose Nyang, a wealth planner for Edelman Financial Engines from Atlanta, Georgia. She's going to help us explore even further all these tricky ins and outs of leaving an inheritance. I'm Jean Chatsky here with Soledad O'Brien. You're listening to Everyday Wealth. You might be working with someone to manage your wealth. But is the relationship working for you? Join Edelman Financial Engines on Tuesday, July 19th at 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern for our brand new virtual event, Why Choosing the Right Wealth Planner Matters, presented by best-selling author Gene Chatsky. 
You can register now at planefe.com. You'll see why all financial planners are not created equal. Gene will show you why having the right partner can have a big impact on your financial future and how to know if your advisor is looking out for your best interests. Don't miss this important virtual event. Join us for Why Choosing the Right Wealth Planner Matters with Gene Chatsky on Tuesday, July 19th at 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern. There's no cost to attend and no obligation. Register now at planefe.com. That's planefe.com. Edelman Financial Engines. From here forward. We're back with you on Everyday Wealth. Thanks for joining us. We want to continue this conversation from the perspective of your wealth planning. And while you want to work with an attorney that you trust, it's also really, really helpful for your financial advisor to be part of the planning, given the relationship that you've built with them over time. They can be incredibly helpful when it comes to putting plans in place. How could you even do it without walking through it with your financial planner? Like, how would you do your estate completely separate and unconnected to the person whose job is to help you navigate your finances? I don't, I, know, I do don't know. In redoing my estate plan, went back and forth with my advisor a number of times. How do you know, for example, that you have the ability to give away money right now and still have enough to get through your own retirement? How do you make sure that you make these decisions? What what happens if you have some sort of a long-term care crisis down the road? What happens if the market goes down and down and down? <laughs> Asking for a friend. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the point is, these are scenarios in which you really should have somebody by your side. And so if you're already working with somebody, fantastic. But if you are looking for a change or you don't have an advisor, you can certainly give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call at 833-PLAN-EFE. You can also visit online at planefe.com. Joining our conversation is Rose Young. She is a wealth advisor from Atlanta. Always good to have her here. Hey, Rose. Hi, Rose. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. We're in the middle of the biggest wealth transfer in history. How many of your clients, would you say, come in to talk to you about estate planning, which is kind of on the side, but very much connected to what you do day in and day out? Not enough. I would like all of my clients to talk about estate planning. It is underutilized and could cause a lot of problems later on down the line if your financial planners do not have visibility uh, when it comes to what you would want to do later on with your assets or even after you pass with your assets. Why do you think that is, Rose? Why do you think not enough people are having these conversations with their financial advisors? I mean, they trust you with their money. This is this is about their family, yes, but it's also about their money. That is true. However, people do not like to talk about themselves dying. They may feel overwhelmed about burdening their kids with a large amount of assets. So that is the reason why uh, many people avoid the conversation. The financial plan is thought of as something that is in the now, whereas the estate plan sometimes is thought of as something later. I thought it was interesting that David's philosophy centers around what you and I have actually and Jean have talked about, right? This idea of like, what's the big picture? It's not just about the numbers in the account, but it's about 
the why is what he calls it. But, you know, I guess I describe it as like, what's the life you want to lead? That's not just about numbers, but about values and how you calculate that in. How do you think about that when you're advising people? At the end of the day, I think for many people, it's just about leaving a legacy for those you love. And then the conversation with me, at least, goes around how do you do that best, keeping those values in mind, but also some of the constraints that you may have within your family, right? Are you wanting to just leave all of this wealth outright to your kids because you trust them, to your grandkids because you trust them, uh, or to your spouse? Uh, maybe you are in a, in a second marriage because you trust that when something happens, they will do the right thing. Or are you wanting to maybe attach some strings to the inheritance that you are leaving behind? So our conversations with our clients are a little bit about that. You mentioned a statistic that a large number of, you know, high net worth people are wanting to to leave a legacy behind. But another statistic is that 68% of those people plan to leave that inheritance with some sort of contingency. Rose, what are we talking about when we're talking about strings? I mean, so I'm redoing my estate plan right now. And when I did it originally, I set it up so that my kids would get money when they were 30, 35, and 40. And if I died, they would not come into money all at once. They would get money at different ages. And ostensibly, that was so they wouldn't blow it. When I went to do it this time, my attorney said, oh, no, we don't do that anymore. But when you are dealing with your clients and they're talking about, yeah, I I, I want to leave money specifically so my kid can start a business, specifically for college, specifically so they can buy a home. I mean, those are all strings. How do you discuss that with them? I know many parents talk about if I were to leave a legacy to my child and they got a divorce, I don't want their spouse that they've divorced to have some of my money. So that's another reason why why people may want to put some strings in there. Or if you have one of your beneficiaries who may be a special needs person, somebody that may not be able to manage their own assets, it's about all these loved ones that I'm giving the money to. Are they capable of managing this money? Are they capable of protecting themselves uh, in case life gets in the way? Do you have conversations with your clients around how to educate their kids? Because I think this is a giant gap, um, you know, and, and I'll be the first to confess, I have not done a good job with my kids outside of saying I'm leaving you nothing because I, <laughs> I want them to want to work and get jobs and et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, I just we just haven't talked about it. And I think that's a mistake. I think if I was and I haven't had this conversation with my kids either, but now I'm thinking it's time. I think I would want an advisor in the room. I think I might want, you know, somebody to protect me from saying the wrong thing. Yeah, absolutely. And also maybe talk to the kids even together where I want my clients to have that, that, that talk more with their children actually is who is going to be responsible for getting things started when I'm no longer here. I mean, it's a big burden. Clients just assume that you know what, my oldest child or my child that is a financial planner, you know, will be the executor on my estate and, and not really ask permission uh, of that child to to take on that burden or, or maybe, you know, not let the other children aware that when something happens to me, 
uh, so-and-so is going to step in and they are in charge of the paperwork of contacting the financial planner. That is definitely a conversation that needs to be had, even if we are not ready to have the dollars and cents conversation. Because things change a lot, unforeseen things can happen to where the money can dwindle to nothing. There is still going to be something within your estate that needs to be dealt with when you pass. So talking to the kids also regularly about whether or not they can still handle it. I know that when I had kids, I mean, I was the person that my parents chose. But when I had kids, I had to have the conversation around this may not be the best time for me if something were to happen to you with a three-year-old and a one-year-old to try to figure things out. So maybe we should bring in, you know, uh, my sister or or somebody else that maybe we can be co-executors of the estate at that time. It is such a big job and and it is a tremendous burden. But all the more reason, I think, Rose, to have these conversations, not just about your estate plan, but about your finances generally. What about being fair, Rose? If we've got... I don't know, a million dollars and four kids. Does everybody get a quarter million dollars? That's the decision for the person who wants to bestow legacy to their children. Some people just want to be, uh, you know, equitable. Everything needs to be equal and everybody's happy. We have many clients that may be a little bit more targeted. Children that have different levels of wealth. Does this one need more than the other? I've had a client who, you know, all of their children has a home but one and wanted to make sure that the family home is left to the one that doesn't have a house yet. So fairness depends. Some will think that it is fair to leave the child who may not be earning as much income, more of that wealth, more of that legacy than the one who may be better off. Either way, that conversation needs to be had because there will be nothing worse than you passing away and one finding out that they are getting quote unquote more and not understanding what your intentions were. Another situation is if one child is caring for you. I've had a client who unfortunately had to leave their job because mom uh, was uh, beginning uh, to develop some signs of dementia. Uh, The other uh, sister is outside of the state. She had to take some financial uh, burden in order to take care of mom until mom passes away. Thank goodness they sat with an estate planning attorney. They sat with me as a financial planner. We walked through all the different scenarios and had a plan in place to not leave that caregiver in a situation where she may be worse off than she would have if she didn't get more. Um, so, But those conversations needed to be open so that the other person that is involved, the other sister, knows why you know, so-and-so is getting more than me is because she had to go from a full-time job to a part-time job. So, Rose, obviously, we've been talking about the market and also the downward trend of the market of late, uh, week after week. And I'm curious how you think about that for estate planning, right? Because it's about what you think you're going to leave. Well, what if what you think you're going to leave you actually don't have or you don't have at this moment? How, how do you navigate that? This is why sitting down in, with your financial planner and with an estate planning attorney is so important so that you don't make these mistakes. You cannot say, I'm going to leave, you know, Tesla stock to John. So if the markets are down and you pass away because you said the Tesla stock is the same value as the Walmart stock, but John likes Tesla, so John gets Tesla. And one stock goes down further than the other. And now that idea of fairness, that idea of equity that you are trying to achieve 
is lost, right? You can do that with tangible assets like the beach house or the Corvette or something like that because they will always be what they are. I love but your you example. cannot do that. <laughs> By the way, I the know. beach house and the Corvette. I want to come live with so both. that is getting the beach house and the Corvette. <laughs> and the oh, Corvette. I get you know? the Corvette. I'll take them both. Gene gets the Tesla stock, right? But that means that Gene <laughs> is tanking absolutely... Tesla stock. Thank you very much. Gene is going to get less than Soledad in that case if, if you are trying to just say the value of, of this. We have clients who say, you know what? While I am still living, I would love to witness my legacy. I would love to give some uh, my kids help with down payment, help with their children's college and so forth and so on. This is why discussing those with your financial planner is so important. Because if you were doing it and it was not, uh, you know, a, a good strategy and you didn't think about market volatility, now you may not have enough for your own life. Nonetheless, the legacy that you want to leave uh, your family. So one simple way is to just state the percentage that each of those who are inheriting will get. So then the, the, the Corvette can be valued, the house can be valued, the stocks will be valued when you pass away, and each will get a percentage of your estate. Rose, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. On a future show, we're going to talk about what to do on the other side of this, right? Like, hey, guess what? You just got a big old inheritance. What do you do now? Because obviously that takes strategy and planning as well. And if you have a question that you'd like us to answer or a topic that you'd like us to discuss, just visit us at planefe.com. Go to the Everyday Wealth page. If you missed last week's show, you can always download the podcast there as well or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. A big thank you today to David York and Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner, Rose Young, for joining us. Have a great week. On Tuesday, July 19th at 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern, Edelman Financial Engines, along with Gene Chatsky, are hosting a new webinar called Why Choosing the Right Wealth Planner Matters. You'll learn how you can benefit from an integrated planning approach that helps connect important parts of your financial life, including tax, estate, and retirement income planning. Why only one type of advisor is legally obligated to serve your best interests and how to talk fees, and which arrangement helps mitigate conflicts of interest. See why partnering with the right wealth planner could have a significant impact on your financial future, especially with today's market volatility and economic uncertainty. Join the webinar on Tuesday, July 19th at 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern. Register now at planefe.com. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Listen in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com. Find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.